Welcome back to the Uncensored CMO. John, who have we got in the hot seat today? Uh, you're going to enjoy this. Right, so as, as the listeners may or may not know, I, I, I have a bit of a record here as the, probably the shortest lived CMO <laughs> of all time, which was my three months at BrewDog. So literally my dream job, but uh, didn't work out. Um, but I met a guy while I was there called Alex Myers. Alex Myers uh, is the founder of Manifest, the PR agency. And um, he he is responsible for all that BrewDog PR that has made them famous. And I was dying to get Alex on the show because I think he's got such an interesting story to tell about his experience on BrewDog. And BrewDog is one of those brands that is just dynamite, both, you know, both positive and negative, actually. And it's really interesting chatting to Alex about what happens when it goes wrong, because, you know, there's been some spectacular, amazing PR, but there's also been a few things that have uh, blown up negatively as well. And just briefly, for those that don't know, what did happen at BrewDog? Why did you leave? Yeah, I mean, BrewDog was a brilliant experience. I have to say, like on the record, genuinely, I am a, and if he's if he's listening, James is a really, really impressive guy. I, I love working for James. Um, I've never been like on my toes more than when I've been working. It's like being interviewed every day, as in you've got to raise your game, you've got, you've got to deliver. And um, and basically, we, we I, I would say we had a brilliant relationship. We had a ton of ideas. I mean, he was regularly challenging me to come up with new ideas, which which I wasn't enjoying. When it came to delivering the ideas, he had such a clear and precise view of how it's going to be executed. Um, that was one thing. And then the second thing is his pace is unbelievable. You know, the timescales he wants stuff delivered in. And I just found it very, very difficult to deliver as many things in the timescales and precisely in the way he wanted to do it. And that's genuinely no, and I'm just, you know, it's just me being honest. So I I, I, mean, I said this to Marketing Week, I think, when they kind of grabbed me on the beach at Cannes and, and, and caught me out for about 45 minutes and kept asking me, so, John, why did you leave BrewDog? Um, and I said then, and it, I think it upset James, that it was too early for a CMO. I stand by that, right, because I, I think it has a lot of very successful founder-led businesses experience. Um, the founder wants to be all over everything, and quite rightly, actually, I have to say, and I, you know, I'll say this to James's face: for him, it's the right thing that he is in everything. Um, and I just think it was a bit early to to kind of fully give the reins to someone else, and also let someone else fail, which is a really weird thing. But you know, he's got so much knowledge and experience, and and for me, I was kind of on that steep learning curve and didn't manage to get there fast enough. So, listen, no regrets. It was an amazing experience, and and actually, even having left, I'm still a super fan of the brand and what they've done which again is why i wanted to have alex on here to share some of the insights yeah. about that journey and um so alex manifest uh, no longer working with brewdog now what happened there do you know the weird thing is i had to fire them Did <laughs> you? i know well it just well, it shows i'm still friends with alex so there were, listen last year there were a couple of really big backlashes on brewdog one was pink ipa uh, another one later in the year where I think James and Martin were kind of pretending to be in a in a, in a pawn shop window or whatever. And um, it just didn't go well. And I, and I think James kind of had had enough at that point. So he, he pulled the trigger on them. But actually, I, I, I did have enough time to get to know Alex and Manifest. And I was really impressed um, at what they'd done. And that they, they are a very significant factor in where why BrewDog are where they are today. Because actually, the thing with BrewDog is... They they all they don't do traditional advertising. They've done a bit this year with Uncommon actually, which um you, you know you'll have seen. But prior to that, they'd done virtually no advertising. So this is a brand that has become the most valuable brand in the UK, most valuable beer brand, sorry I should say, based on the Brand Z report. 
uh, through no conventional advertising, and that that is really impressive. And a lot of that's going to be PR. Yeah, and uh, Alex and Manifest had quite a public spat with um, he did. With, with James he did. and Brudel. I'll, yeah. I'll make sure I leave the link to the article with the Alex yeah. wrote. But just sum up quickly what happened there. Yeah, that, absolutely. I mean, this is this is one of the the, 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 the the tensions you get with agency client relationships, and it's even more so when you're moving at the pace and working with someone like James. Uh, as well they had um so manifest had done some work for the launch of um an alcohol free version of Brewdog. um james would consider it part of the retainer alex had done it as a separate piece of work so that you know they um alex was wanting recognition for for that but it's one of those things that kind of got came to a head and then what happened is what the reason it kind of went viral is everyone then jumped on it as an example of where agencies don't get the recognition or the payment from brands and so it, it kind of hit on a nerve i think in agency land and so it kind of blew up a little bit which is you know what i wanted to ask uh, ask alex about yeah definitely i think this is this is another really really good episode i'm really pleased you got alex on actually based on your experiences both with Brewdog. so there's loads of tasty info in there so and also you know i mean i mean i'm sure alex would want me to say this as well he's famous for he's famous for Brewdog, but actually some of the other stuff manifest are doing is really good i particularly admire what they're doing in terms of investing in new brands so some of the new brands and sectors they're getting into as a business is, is really quite fascinating and he's a smart guy alex so uh there's lots of little uh, pearls of wisdom in what he's got to say. So you're going to enjoy this. So let's get into it and uh, let's talk to Alex. Welcome, Alex. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Where did this all start for you? Tell me your background. So I started off out of uni. I did what most people do, get, got the first job I could. Um, I thought I was going into media and I went to work at um, trade publications um, doing a mixture of basically like selling advertorials and then writing them. Um, so that was my first job out of uni. And then I realized I was getting pitched because I was on media databases by PR people who seemed to have a much more exciting job than I did. Uh-huh. And someone I was interviewing, a, C- a CMO I was interviewing, said, do you know anyone who could do RPR? And I was like, I could definitely do that, <laughs> not knowing anything <laughs> about it. And got into comms that way. So I just made it up as I went along in-house at a a company called Games Tech, which is a sort of video games in in venue leisure entertainment business. And where did the name Manifest come from? So it's odd. So I inherited the name Manifest. I worked at an agency called Manifest um, in Huddersfield. Um, So I actually took them on when I was at Games Tech and then jumped ship to work for them. And they're primarily a design agency. And I sort of set up the comms side of that business. But... um, when I wanted to set up on my own, I got in touch with the the founders of that business to just ask their advice. And they said, they sort of gave me lots of advice and said, I tell you what, why don't you resell our design services and we can resell your social media comms stuff. Um, and I said, okay, great, can I have the name? Because they always really didn't like it that much or they didn't seem particularly passionate about it. And my first job when I joined was to write the manifesto and to say, this is what manifest stands for, this is what we do. And um, I always felt really passionate about it, and they didn't. So I was like, okay, well, we're going to be Manifest London. And then in the end, I gave them a minority shareholding to help me set the business up, like not capital investment, but website and the, and the rest. Um, so I bought them out, and when I did that, they changed their name to Ilk because they realized that sort of Manifest London was what people regarded as Manifest. Yeah, so. so that was then. Take us through to now. So how big are Manifest now? Where, where are you based? What, what are you up to? So we have three offices now. We have London, which is our headquarters, New York and Stockholm. Um, so London's been going for 10 years. 
um, last month. Um, and there's, I think there's 32 people now in London. Um, we're, we're recruiting numerous more positions, so it's 32 at the moment. Um, and then we have um, teams in New York. New York's been open for five years in January, and then Stockholm's three in January. So, um, so yeah, we've got smaller teams there. I think we're up to 12 in New York, and then in Stockholm, uh, we have six. And it, any, are you, so as you kind of go global, are you seeing any differences in how clients are using PR as you go to different markets? Does it change, or is it pretty much the same? Massively, it's hilarious. There's a whole spectrum. So I think... London sits in the middle of this amazing spectrum as I think the creative hub. So London is really where the creative comms comes from in, in New York or in the US in general. Um, PR certainly isn't a creative discipline, um, but digital and branding are really creative and they're great. Um, so there's an opportunity for us really to take a holistic approach there. And then in Sweden, the branding's amazing. Everyone's got a real purpose-driven brand. Um, they're light years ahead on the yeah. digital side, um, but really struggle articulating you know that that kind of thing in a in a unique manner like everyone does it the same way there's quite a script they follow which is here's how to be different this year okay. so i think they really enjoy the the unique approach that we take from that um, but there's loads of different cultures one of the reasons why we wanted to expand globally was for the creative Im inspiration like that if we're global citizens we'll take a different approach to things and new yorkers think very differently to those in stockholm who think very differently to those in london um, and it's exciting to sort of blend all of those different mindsets. It's really part of the fun of it. So it's quite a disruptive agency. How do you keep that kind of challenger approach that you've become famous for as, as you get bigger? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. We've never really considered that we were challenging anything. But I think one thing that we did do is that we've maintained throughout is not know what the fuck we're doing <laughs> um, in terms of the business side. So I, I think we set up a business when I was a group account director that no one had ever heard of. Um, and that was such a benefit because most people set up a business when they've already made a name for themselves. Um, they're, they're known for a certain kind of work. So they have a real script that they have to follow and they tend to have big agency experience where they bring, okay, here's our policies and systems and procedures for everything. Whereas at Manifest, we've literally invented everything from the ground up. So our appraisal structure, um, our holiday policies, everything has been a creative opportunity. And I think maintaining that mindset is the important bit. So seeing everything as a creative brief. I never realized when I set up the business how fun it would be to run one. I set up the business to do the work I wanted to do the way I wanted to do it. Um, but I didn't realize how creative you could be, you know, writing a holiday policy or coming up with ways to, um, to you know, help people have a better induction process. Yeah. You know, like just weird things like that that can be super fun if you just don't see it as a, how do we do what everyone else does but a bit better? Instead, not know what anyone else does and just build it from the ground up. There's something up. in that, isn't it? That like almost the more boring the brief, the more exciting the opportunity. I, mean, I remember I um, joined a small juice business in the Midlands and uh, I turned up and maybe slightly arrogantly said, um, who can print me some business cards? And which everyone kind of looked at me and went, you can print them yourself. And I, I thought, oh, that's going to be a bit of an effort. I've got to design a business card and you know, this sort of thing. And I was working with um, uh, an, a, a company I know you know very well, Blipper, who, who yeah. was starting out in augmented reality. 
And I thought, damn it, if I'm going to do a business card, it's going to be the best bloody business card in the world. So I ended up kind of working with Blipper and creating like a, an avatar of myself that popped out the card and did a little speech, you know, and it was brilliant. So I went to, went to customer meetings and the first thing I did, gave him my business card and said, oh, if you want to know anything about Juice Burst, just have a look at this card. And it was brilliant. Kind of, you know. That's awesome. I think actually there's one thing that, from a, if we're going back to the beginning, one thing that I think defined our overall approach as well was back when I w- lived up north, one of my clients was um, a roof tile company. And this was my first agency job, at what was then manifest in Huddersfield. And I was driving over to Castleford to this roof tile company. And I remember thinking, what a dog of a brief is this, right? Roof tiles. I can't imagine being excited or passionate about roof tiles. And that's how I get to my creative um, process. And I was just like, this is just awful. Parked up, I went in, an amazing CMO talked me through the products and you know the sustainability policies, which were great. And I was like, okay, it's really interesting, but it's just roof tiles. Yeah. And I looked around the factory and had this big purpose-built kiln. And then I went to the bit where they do restoration projects. And there's this guy who's making small roof tiles by hand um, for restoration projects. So in the old fashioned way, I guess. And he must have been knocking on 70. And I went up to him and got introduced to him. I remember his name was Trevor. And he said, um, I said, so how long have you been doing this? And he said, all my life. And I was like, right, okay. So it's like 40 years or something. He said, my dad did it before me and my granddad before, before him. And in my head, I remember just thinking, what kind of twat are you? <laughs> <laughs> to drive over here thinking that this guy's vocation is boring. Right, my job is to see why Trevor gets up in the morning and make everyone else feel that whenever they see a roof, which literally keeps us dry, which we underestimate every day. You know, like all of these things that thought processes people have put into something as basic as a roof tile that no one ever gives a shit about. Your job is actually to get them to give a shit about it. And that was so exciting. When I came out of that meeting, I was buzzing. And I think that's really influenced why Manifest exists. It's like, there's no such thing as a boring brief, just boring creatives. Yeah, oh, that's a brilliant, brilliant example. I love that. Um, listen, let, let's let's uh, let's go to where uh, where we first met. Yeah. So, um, Brewdog, which is is probably the brand that uh, you're most famous for. And I know, um, uh, in fact, your tenure with Brewdog was far more successful than mine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you need to tell me how how uh, how you did that. But. Um, one of the things that I, I often tell people about Brewdog is, um, uh, I think it was last year they got um, uh, into the top 75 UK brands in the Brand Z kind of list of, of most powerful brands. And what struck me when I saw that uh, was they were the only beer brand in the list. In fact, they were, I think the score they got was twice any other beer, uh, to, you know, ahead of Guinness, ahead of Stella. But it's a brand that's been created without any, well, without much conventional marketing. I mean, there's been no really bit above the line campaign, so to speak of. So the, the Brewdog has managed to disrupt that category pretty much through PR. I mean, obviously, the, I mean, the one thing that goes without saying is it's absolutely awesome beer, of course, and uh, amazing. But, but I think it's a, a huge credit to what you guys have done that actually created such a powerful brand through PR as well. So take me back to um, how, did that, how, did that st- how did you meet James? Where did it all start? And uh, how did you get going? So yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a long relationship, so it's going back quite a while. So um, 
We started working with BrewDog in 2010. So I think at some point, the end of 2009, bear in mind, we started, I started Manifest in, still used the proverbial we, but it was just me in my living room in 2009, September. So I think he put, he tweeted, which at the time, now is commonplace, yeah. but at the time was quite rare. Um, does anyone know any PR agencies? And I think there was some comment in there as well, like um, that aren't dickheads or something like that. Um, and I had an alert set up for anyone who mentioned recommending or asking for PR agencies. Um, and that was my like my new business leads, basically. I'd never heard of BrewDog at the time, um, and no one had, really. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, d I tweeted him back and said, I can't promise on the dickhead bit, but <laughs> we're a PR agency. And he sent us the brief, um, and we responded. I remember creating um, uh, Never Mind the Bollocks, Here's BrewDog, like Sex Pistols cover... Um, album sleeve and created a whole 12 month program for them massively over engineered the pitch response um and yeah he just invited us up to to the brewery and it went from there really amazing i, I mean th th there's so many famous uh, bits of brew dog uh uh stunts or activity what would be your favorite what, what are you most proud of if you could pick one i think it's tough i think i worked it out we've done just over, I think just over 50 campaigns, like big creative campaigns, which is prolific, right? Even over that period of time. Um, but I think one of the key moments in time for me was when we created um, the world's first protest beer. Um, never mind, uh, sorry, not never mind the anabolics. That was a different that one. That was another one, yeah. It was, um, hello, my name is Vladimir. Um, so at the time, it, it was the Sochi Olympics, the Winter Olympics, and um, Vladimir Putin was all over the news because um, he'd introduced lots of homophobic legislation. And there was lots of protest around certain countries going to the Olympics even. Um, but Heineken were the headline sponsor. So we were like, well, actually, it's nonsense that beer should be a headline sponsor of an Olympic Games, but also, um, you know, it's bollocks that no one's saying what everyone wants. Everyone else is saying you know no brand dare stand up and say this is wrong so we created hello my name is vladimir and we it was the first time we donated the profits to stonewall and other equal rights groups in russia um but it was it was the beer that did the talking i mean the brew dog strategy or the brew dog purpose was always make everyone as passionate about great craft beer as we are but that didn't mean we had to make them love the taste of it like what, lo what i loved about hello my name is vladimir was that everyone saw beer as this tool for smashing the system the beer became our media yeah. um, and that was exciting we elevated the status of beer to be a protest device no one had done that before i think that was really important i mean i, I always thought the, the 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 best work was always when the purpose and the mm. product were combined totally. uh, I, mean, I mean one of my favorites was nanny state which was wasn't yeah. that in response to uh was it tactical nuclear penguin beforehand that had been wrapped for having such a high ABV. That was actually just when we started, when we first met James, that uh, the nanny state just came, basically came from that um, uh, uh, that era. And it was, yeah, the the only sort of press coverage that BrewDog had got was the controversial stuff, mostly the Daily Mail saying, this man is gonna, with a picture of James Watt saying, yeah. this, this man is gonna destroy Britain or whatever, binge Britain. Yeah. Um, and with his high ABV beers, which obviously cost, a fortune. So if you wanted to get smashed on no money, you couldn't buy a tactical nuclear anyway, penguin. So there's not that many people. Yeah. So Nanny State came came uh, off the back of that, and I think that's where James and, to be honest, manifest when um, we took the brief was beer can be so much more 
you know, it can be part of our language. What we don't need to do is push product, but the product can be the best example of the brand. And I think that's what BrewDog has done well. That's why the value is so high. They take an approach to brand that um, you know, Nike does or Apple. You know, the product is the best example of the brand living out its values. It's not, um, you know, a reflection of the product. And I think it used to be a case of what does our brand stand for? And I think some CMOs still ask that question. Um, but in reality now, it's what does our brand stand up for? That's yeah. the important question. That's a great distinction. And, um, and that's what our creative approach has always been. You know, if Coca-Cola claims that its brand purpose is happiness, which it, it does or certainly used to, well, it's not because it doesn't go to where happiness isn't. You know, it should be supporting um, male suicide charities or anti, you know, or depression and anxiety. Um, you know, it, it should be looking at those cultural issues that stand in the way of everyone feeling happy and well-rounded and say, we stand against this. You can't just stand up for happiness. You have to stand against something else. Mm-hmm. And I think BrewDog have... have been an example of us bringing that to life you know that and i think that's when they've gone wayward you know to some extent what they've stood against doesn't jar with their purpose that's true anymore i love the one um that the uh when when trump announced he was going to build a wall in mexico and then and then brewdog announced they're going to build a bar on the wall you know and, and drink you know build you know drink beer not to not not create walls sort of thing. Oh, that was yeah. brilliant. So. But that, yeah, brilliant bar on response. the edge. And that was our launch yeah. in the US. But again, I don't know any other brewery that would go to the US and not tell anyone what their beer was. Yeah. But to say, no, we're going to build a bar across the US-Mexico border and we'll only sell Mexican beer on the US side and US beer on the Mexican side because collaboration and connection between cultures has been the foundation of the craft beer scene. And we want to make everyone as passionate about great craft beer as we are. And if that means we can show that it's a collaborative, cultural collaborative product, then so be it. You know, that's I, think, I think the collaboration is, is such a powerful um, part of the story as well. So whether it's like Equity for Punks, um, you know, having the AGM as being basically a massive beer festival, music, and you know, it's the one AGM where no one's talking about profit or or, or projected sales. It, it's it's a celebration of uh, all things craft beer. I've watched and those AGMs evolve are, over know, the years. It's yeah. been hilarious. But um, but yeah, I think you see there that people believe in a brand, but also that that brand really does revolve around James and Martin, mm. this yin and yang of the business. And that's really where their success comes from too. You can't be a brand as successful as they are without the great product. But actually, people really adopted it because it didn't advertise too. Um, and I think I think we're the first brand in that certainly in that category that's ever been in a fast track 100 without advertising. Yeah. And it was in the first brand ever to be in it five years running. Um, and I think that that's an enormous statement about the how well the brand the brand is run. Um, but it's also this, this huge weight of responsibility when you come to an, a point where you have to advertise. And I think there's been a few false starts, but I would say to um, to the credit of BrewDog, like working with, um, is it Nils Leonard? And, Uncommon, yeah. And Uncommon, yeah. like fantastic choice. I think the work that they're doing is great. Yeah, no, it's, it's superb. Hi, it's John here, just interrupting uh, just for a, a little second uh, to tell you about the next episode of the Uncensored CMO. And um, one of the quotes, one of the things Alex said earlier, which just resonated with me was, how do we make brave the new safe when actually the real risk is not changing at all? And um, someone that I think embodies that is Jess Butcher, co-founder of Blipper and founder of uh, a new app called Tick Done. Someone who's taken a lot of risk in her career 
and um, also as a female entrepreneur in the tech space has done some amazing things and has got a really refreshing view on the role of technology and also um, what it's been like to be a woman in a kind of quite male dominated uh, sector. Um, it's a really fascinating uh, conversation. I know you're going to love it. In fact, it was so fascinating, I had to divide it up into two. So you're going to get part one um, on the next episode, and then part two is going to come in season two. But uh, check back in, have a listen. I know you're going to love it. It hasn't always been plain sailing, though, has it? I mean, there's been a few uh, bumps in the road on the PR front. So, I mean, like Pink IPA or something like that. Give me an example of where it goes wrong, and how, how do you respond to that? I mean, there's a, it's difficult because... Like we genu- I genuinely feel like I'm ma- massively invested in the Brewdog brand, and whenever we've discussed it, like there's a point of love that com- you know from from manifest certainly feels like hewn into that brand, especially in the early days. And I think the challenge is when um, m- multiple people get involved, but perhaps don't have the same rationale from the brand, and it becomes this is what I think Brewdog can do then something can be just slightly awry. All it takes is one fly in the ointment, right? And I think Pink IPA is a great example of a of an idea. I guess to give a bit of background, it was a, a beer produced for International Women's Day, I think, was the was the concept. And changing one letter of punk to pink um was was in, integral to the idea. It came internally from Brewdog. And when it was presented to us, we were just like, okay, the name isn't gonna be the name's going to be a problem because we need to make this make sure this looks like a parody it's of, obviously a parody, of yeah. Um, yeah. gender stereotyping in beer marketing. Um, and when we saw the images and when we saw the video content and the assets have been produced internally, which was the first time there's a big internal job done on a PR campaign. It wasn't a manifest campaign. We were, we were just like, this is, this is a challenge. This isn't going to work because you're, what we're saying here is that, you know, women can, it's the different on the outside, same on the inside. That's not actually what feminism is, as far as I'm concerned. Feminism is treating difference equally. Mm-hmm. So understanding that there's a difference between genders, ethnicities, and everyone, but everyone, that diversity is what makes everything a better whole. So if there's a veto, we veto, this cannot go out um, under no uncertain circumstances. Um, but it did, you know, and what we did, we tried to um, help it, you know, we tried to deal with the crisis and the issue that cropped up from the fact that it just looked too much like what it wanted to parody. And I think el- there's an element of trying to be too safe with it. You know, it should have been covered in fur and glitter and all yeah. the other gender yeah, stereotype yeah. stuff. Well, that was the problem, wasn't it? Because some people took it seriously. Some people thought it was... It yeah, they, 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 they get, thought they that it was a serious attempt to market yeah. to women yeah. on International Women's Day, which yeah. it, it obviously was a sarcastic attempt to market to women. And I think there's a mixture of stuff. And this, is, this isn't me, by the way, passing the book either, because I think actually the responsibility for it going awry wasn't that the idea was wrong. It's that there's this, there was, it was at that point of the sea change on Twitter where um, the currency of Twitter went from collaboration to outrage. You know, we're in... Um, a, a, a hyper woke mm-hmm. sort of culture at the moment where you know criticism is is the easiest thing to do you look at something online you say this is why that's wrong and you sit back in your you know office chair and continue on your spreadsheet um having never even clicked the link you know and that's something that was relatively that's new at so the time that's so true because because very often now in social media it, the commentaries on 
on the reaction, not on the actual content. And so often people have never actually seen the original content or bothered to understand what it is. They're just being outraged at the response. Yeah, for sure. And I think with, with Pink, we said don't do it. But don't get me wrong, we tried to save it. Um, you know, and I, there's not a sort of time when anyone mentions it goes by where I don't think maybe there's something I could have said. Maybe there's something I could have done. I know that, you know, um, afterwards it was why didn't we say anything more vociferously and I don't know how much more I could have dialed it up. But at, at the same time, um, it wasn't the idea that was wrong. You know, there was a lot of unfair criticism of Pink. It was a good idea for a, uh, with a good cause delivered badly. And I think there's an equation, right? You can have a bad idea delivered well that works. You can't have a good idea delivered poorly and it work. Just doesn't happen. Like the delivery is the bit that people sometimes forget about. And actually you can't have a brave idea and then be vanilla in the delivery, which is what happened with Pink. Yeah. No, good advice. Brilliant advice. Um, but uh, you, had a, you had a public spat with James, didn't you? Just uh, after uh, passing company <laughs> that got a little bit, of, uh, little bit of a reaction. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, it, I would say it was definitely a public spat. I would say that for me and James, it was probably far less emotional than for everyone else who seemed to get involved. Um, and it was quite difficult to handle as well when you've worked with a brand and individuals in that brand for so long like there's no animosity as far as I'm concerned between myself or Manifest and Brewdog like at all um, you know and I only ever wish them well and James too but essentially we provided a branding response to a non-alcoholic beer brief that they gave us and our suggested name was um, our suggested whole strategy was called Punk AF um, with the AF meaning as fuck or yeah, yeah, yeah. alcohol free <laughs> and the strategy being that there's no bite in the alcohol free sector and we also, when we presented this, suggested that a non-alcoholic version of Punk IPA would be a really good idea rather than doing fruit beers. Um, anyway, then I saw that the plan was to launch Punk AF um, and emailed James and said, it's good to see you're going down our route, but you, we'd been told you're going in a different direction and um, got no received no reply. So when it came out, I literally, it, I thought it was quite a neutral post that only people who knew Manifest would care about which was, um, this is our idea. We were told they're going in a different direction. We never got paid for it. And then I went into a meeting and then I came out and um, the beer internet anyway had exploded. Um, and I think, you know, it sort of, there was, it, it mixed in with lots of other cultural issues around Brewdog that either are or aren't their fault, but certainly nothing for me to comment on. But it became the internet versus Brewdog pretty quickly. And I felt, you know, that at that point in time, I didn't feel vindicated at all. That's not what I was looking for. And in fact, we weren't looking for money or anything like that. I just wanted the credit, to be honest. Um, privately, it would have been fine. Um, but um, yeah, I, d I didn't really ha set out with a major objective. And I think that's why it sort of spiraled out of control. Well, I, th I, think, uh, I think you probably hit on a bit of a nerve, which is kind of where how, how the, the agency-client relationship and how sometimes it breaks down. Um, and I think sometimes, uh, you know, uh, agencies feel they're not getting recognition or they're not getting paid or they're not getting valued and that kind of thing. So I, I think it kind of spoke to maybe a slightly wider kind of frustration that a lot of agencies I know feel, um, yeah. you know, when they don't get their work 
recognize. And I think James's response on Twitter was, um, was you know, like empathizing with him. As far as he's concerned, it was perfectly valid. We were under retainer when we provided that pitch response, but we were under retainer for the PR and comms. This was a separate branding brief under a separate budget. And I think too often people think they're retaining you, not retaining a number of hours to deliver a certain scope of work. Even if that's what the contract they signed says, people see you as effectively, you know, someone who can deliver anything. Anything that I, I produce if I'm being paid for something else is fair game. And it's not the first time it happened. I remember one of our um, strategies for the year was live craft, die punk. And that ended up just on the vans. So we weren't paid for copywriting or anything. Not saying we should have been, but like it was, it's an example of that. But again, as an agency, we never stood up and said that. You know, to, to James's credit, I never said to him, you can't use these things. Mm. It's not his fault. We're, agencies are culpable in that. Um, but I, in this instance, with Punk AF, I had said, this is our concept. Um, and I'd also, unfortunately for Brewdog, I'd made the mental note, because it's not the only client that's done this, right? We're not the only agency that's had that issue. So I'd just made a mental note. Next time it happens, I'm just going to call it out. Mm. Yeah, one of our sort of values as a business is fierce independence, you know, and making our voice heard. We stand up for, you know, our industry doing things in the right way. And if we're going to say that, then we have to live by the sword so, as well. So on that, something I know um, I've seen you kind of comment on a lot as well is pitching. So, um, I mean, it's, it's another kind of hot topic, isn't it, in kind of agency land. And I know, I know as a kind of, you know, I've been client side 20 years um, and uh, actually since leaving Brewdog, strangely, I, I've ended up doing a lot of kind of pitch training for agencies, helping them to you know, understand a CMO better, how they, you know, how they, how they pitch more successfully. Um, and actually, I've, I've ended up actually doing some pitching as well, which has been so fascinating because it, it's like seeing the other side of the fence is really interesting. Um, I had a few experiences this year where, you know, uh, a client would give like three or four days notice, right? We want a really big strategic idea. We want three different routes and this sort of thing. So you move heaven and earth to do the work, which you're not, you're not being paid for. And then um, you hear nothing for like a week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, nothing. And then you get a bit of feedback going, ah, we've changed direction. Or, um, you know, oh, uh, you know, um, they kept, we didn't think the chemistry was quite right and this sort of thing. So um, what's your experience of pitching? It's a mixed bag. I mean, I love a pitch. Just like, it, to be honest, it's, the f it's part of the fun and games of bit running an agency is the pitch process. But does it work for brands? Does it bollocks? Like, it, it's, not the, it's not the right thing. Um, I think most of the time you write a brief. A lot of the time it's an invented brief. Um, so you're like, well, because we don't want you to work on real work because then we'd have to pay you. It's like, well, okay, well, we'll all work on this false brief for nothing then and no one gets any value. But I think essentially you, you respond to the brief and even if you respond and you don't win the pitch, you've informed what they do, don't like as much as you've informed yes. what they do. And I think realistically, it's a bit lazy a lot of the time. So, you know, if we get told that we're on a pitch list of 10, we'll probably just turn it down. And it's not because we don't think we can beat nine other agencies. It's because there's not any thought put in from the brand. Like really, you can spend a lot of time or you can cut a lot of time out and cost out of the pitch process as a CMO in just doing your research. You know, we get sent some briefs that just aren't our brief. If you want an agency that's going to do the same thing you did last year, a little bit better for less money to keep your 99% market share, we're not 
Don't choose. Don't put manifest on your pitch list. That's not what we I, do. I think this one of the challenges, though, because um, I'm not quite sure how many PR ranges there are, but I think there's at least 2,000 in the UK. And then you might have a top 100. So as a CMO, I, I go, where the hell do I start? It's impossible. I mean, so I, I started resorting to um, phoning up sort of the, you know, the three people I trust the most in PR and said, who would you hate to pitch against? You know, yeah, that's or, a good way yeah, to put ask, it. Ask them something like that. Because at the end of the day, I, you know, as a CMO, I've got so little time to spend researching who, you know, who's hot, who's not, and who's doing the great work and stuff. It's really, it's genuinely really, really hard to do. So if, if I can get a trusted recommendation, say, do you know what? This agency on this brief are the best. It, I mean, it counts for a huge amount. Definitely. And follow agencies the same way that agencies follow brands as well. And it might seem like it's navel gazing, but actually you learn a lot from those other campaigns and stuff. And most agencies now put out really good brand content. Yeah. I think one thing that's interesting is this, this cross-pollination of channels. I think, you know, all ad agencies are getting into the earned game and earned media agencies are getting into the, the paid media game. So I think for CMOs, it's becoming even more clouded. I think it's a, it, you know it's a, it's a difficult challenge. So what I would say is most agencies are competent, or they wouldn't be in those top lists. They wouldn't be award winners, right? So, like we do what we do really well, but you're only ever going to take our word for it until you you know look at the work itself. But the really the, the way success is going to happen is if you think the same way. You know, I don't want to keep going back to the BrewDog example, but I don't know many agencies that would have put up with BrewDog, but also I don't know many brands that would have put up with the the demands we put on BrewDog, you know, like it was a symbiotic relationship the whole time, you know, and, you know, it was, um, that's where good work comes from though, is that ability to be able to say no, um, that ability to be real partners. And I think that's what we demand of all of our clients now, but that's what, as a CMO, you want someone who gets you, it's chemistry in the room, right? If you don't just interview the CV, um, you know, you, you, it's the attitude you're looking for. You know, if I was a CMO, I'd be looking for, do they believe in us? Because if they do, they'll have skills, right? They'll have creativity. Um, but the ideas come from the passion. They don't come from, you know, the, that strategy comes from belief. It doesn't come from rationale. Yeah. Um, you can rationalize the shittest strategy in the world, but you can't believe in it. It's a good point on the, on the strategy. One, one mistake I think lots of CMOs or senior marketeers make is uh, treating the PR agency as sort of the, the end of the process. So we'll do our big above the line campaign. Oh, hang on a minute. We might want to amplify it or, or something like that. Um, and actually, one thing I admire about what you've done is uh, you very much invest in the strategy up front and, and coming up with a brand strategy that's clear and purpose-led and relevant in culture and that kind of thing. And I think, I think something all brands could benefit from is bringing in a kind of PR voice and point of view um, much, much earlier in the process. Definitely, and make that strategy channel agnostic, right? Make it a brand strategy, and then it lives on whichever channels are right for your audience. But like we, we as Manifest, like I don't want to sound too wanky, but like our, our brand purpose is to build brands that change the world, yeah. right? And most agencies have a wanky statement like that, and it's fine. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot. <laughs> um, but, uh, but we actually, it's baked into our creative process. So the first stage is understanding the brand. What's our purpose? What gets us up in the morning? And then what's the change we're looking to create? Now, we take a behavioral economics point of view on that. It's like, okay, what do we need to establish that's a magnetic pull for people, for our audience? But also, what do we need to destroy? 
what's the status quo we need to break down? Why do people not choose this way already is something we need to understand. And then the world, you know, it's what's the positive impact on the individual, on the category and on society in general? And then what's the behavioral things that stand in the way? What's the category elements that stand in the way? What's our competition doing? And then what's the brand legacy stuff that stops us being what we want to be? And I think if you can create a brand platform that connects all those dots, then you've got something really potent, but it doesn't say this is a headline. It doesn't say this would be a great ad campaign. It's a, it's a strategy, you know, it's a, it's a purpose, it's a meaning with a creative vernacular that then you know you've got it right when you can't stop coming up with ideas. If it's like blood from a stone, you've got the platform wrong, go upstream and, and tweak and then see yeah. what happens. It does. It makes the work so much easier. I remember working on um, LucasAid Sport, and we, we, we relaunched LucasAid Sport, and we came up with this purpose, which you know we were on the wrong side of, I guess, the argument as it were, because we were seen as bad, you know, full of sugar and this sort of thing. But equally, we're we're trying to help people do more sport, and so we came up with this uh, this this thought, which is, we're all as human beings made to move, and the more we move and exercise, the healthier we are. Mm. So we suddenly said, well, actually. If, if, if our purpose is to help people move, suddenly everything we do should be there to help people move. And it, it just made everything easy. So, you know, I think Anthony Joshua was on our book. So we suddenly said to him the day after I think we came up with this, oh, can you just tweet that you're going to go down to the local park and do a run and just get people to come out and join you? But then it that's was it. so easy. You, know? you give that platform to a creative. Like I'm already thinking, OK, well, we put a, um, a vending machine at the top of Ben Nevis. Yeah. You know, make people move to get the... Pro it's a free... free the Lucas's first free vending machine, but it's at the top of the, the biggest mountain in the, in I, the UK. I, I, I wanted like to brand the... You know how, like, in some tube stations, that there are actually stairs... Very yeah. few people know. In certain stations, there are these stairs. It's the forgotten them. media. I was going to go. This is like the gym, right? This, yeah. this, this could be like you could burn three hundred calories just by going on the stairs. The urban gym. Up, up, you know, that's, the, an, yeah. that's a concept all in its own right. Exactly. exactly. But, um, but, but yeah, it, that's it just it. You've got so platform, many ideas. Got it right. We've got a platform, and then and then with that one, the other thing, the other unintended consequence that was really powerful was suddenly our customers got it as well, and they were part of it. I remember um, having this meeting. Uh, with Greg's the baker. So um, I, I, was, I was pitching our new strategy, which is that you know, we're here to help people move. And then the first chance I got get to do was in front of Greg's. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a bit awkward, right? Because <laughs> you guys are famous for your pies and uh, sausage rolls. Um, and we had the entire top team from Greg's. And they loved it because they said, well, our problem is that all our staff don't do much moving. And they're, they're, all, they're all stood kind of, you know, uh, by the ovens and serving customers. We want our staff to move. So they, they, they then said to me, could I help, help, help their staff with this same strategy? And, of course, in return, you know, we got more space in the fridge and, all, you know, all the commercial benefits came. But um, I thought it was interesting when you're so clear on your purpose and it's relevant in culture as, as it was at the time, a whole lot of stuff becomes, you know, much, much easier to do. Mm, which I think is, that's, where, that's when you know you've got a good strategy, isn't it? For sure, yeah. So t tell me about, uh, what, what's your approach to awards? I, I, I amuse myself at kind of watching, uh, I follow you, the Romans, you know, Talker Taylor, people like that, and uh, always, always fun watching the competition whenever there's a PR awards moment. And I have to say, I, I thought it was quite funny, the uh, tweet, uh, no, not the tweet, the LinkedIn the other day from... Uh, was it Taylor Herring? Did yeah, he, did, I think did they did put it on video. Twitter. Yeah, 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 they did. They did like the meme video yeah. of the guy who's like, oh, my word, we won the new work experience guy. I think, you know what, awards are fun. It's just part of that fabric of, of the industry. I think, for again, for CMOs, they provide a bit of a sat-nav to where the good work comes yeah. from. But also, I think, you know, it's also quite easy to game. You know, you can just carpet bomb the awards. You can get 20 nominations 
by just nominating yourself 20 times. But like, I think the for us, we put a big emphasis on the agency awards because it tends to be more well-rounded. You tend to get a visit from the judges. It tends to be a more in-depth discussion. But also, I think that's where we stand out is also, you know, we, we look at everything as a whole and the innovation piece within the industry. Um, but they're good. It's good for us to see what el- other work is out there. You know, all those agencies are doing good work. Yeah. Um, they're all nice guys. You know, it, it's it's part of the, the social scene as well. Um, but yeah, we don't take it too seriously, but it tends to be a challenge of, okay, how do we win it again next year? Yeah. I think like last year, we won five agency of the year awards. We're the only agency to win international agency of the year and UK agency of the year in the same year. So um, so we were like, okay, can we? how do we top that this year? But really, it's just, it's a soft metric, yeah. you know. It's, it, I think it's, it's a, like I said, a sat-nav. So who, uh, so if, if you took yourself out of the equation, who do you think is doing the best work at the moment or which brand is doing the best work from a PR point of view? I think it's tough because I, I don't really see ourselves as a PR agency anymore because we work, obviously, across the whole marketing mix, the whole comms mix. And I think in PR, there's some amazing agencies. I think you mentioned, you know, Taylor Herring doing great work. Um, Talker Taylor um, done some good stuff this week even um, and they all tend to be those small to mid-sized agencies actually that are, that are the ones that are breaking the creative ground but I think sometimes just get too siloed in that earned media space to be honest um, but the agencies that I'm really looking at, I really look up to myself are people like Huge um, who are multi-discipline agency who just smash it out of the park in terms of a, an agency brand um, I look at Dixon Baxi in the design world, uh, Wolf Ollins in branding. Um, those are interesting agencies. There's a guy called Christopher Doyle in Sydney um, who I would just, uh, who I've got the biggest professional crush on. Um, <laughs> who uh, Who just has that passion for his industry improving, not just doing good work. Um, so they're the people that I'm, I'm watching out for. I think it's quite easy for me to keep up with PR agencies yeah. in London. Yeah. Um, and also in every territory, we've got different competitors, really. So like that's obviously the London set, but in Stockholm and in New York, it's very different. That 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 diversification is just talked about in terms of different different industries is, I think, really really healthy, isn't it? Mm. And I know um, you as an agency as well have, have started sort of dabbling in innovation and getting into yeah. other things. So what 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 what's what's inspired that? I think because we built our own tools. So we built the digital newsroom for digital news distribution. We built um, uh, Roger, which is an influencer platform that clients kept then saying, can we just have one? Can we have Roger? Um, So we were like, sure, we can work this out. Um, And it was fun building stuff, you know, like build amazing things every day. Like who else gets to have that as your job? I mean, it's quite easy to get bogged down in the stress in our industry, right? But actually think about it. Who else gets to come up with ideas for a living? So you're in a really good position, aren't you? Because you, you know you're right at the tip of trends and and seeing what's out there. You're incredibly well connected. You're having conversations with lots of kind of interesting people about the future and where it's all going. So you're very well placed. But I guess loads of agencies would say that, wouldn't they? Everyone says, "Oh yeah, yeah." We design agency go, "Well, we're going to create our own brand," you know. But it's great to see you actually kind of following through and investing in some other businesses. Yourself. Yeah, well, we're doing our own ventures. So we've got um, Offset Earth is a um, a sort of climate change, climate crisis, reforestation project. I'm about to go and meet Rise Up, which is a youth voter registration campaign we ran in 2017, which we're going to run for the election again this year. Um, we've got um, Human, which is a, um, a social network for NGOs in Sweden. We've also just um, we've launched Roars, which is one of the most successful oh, hospitality like products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a straw company that made straws with wheat. 
a natural product, and it was called Straw Buddy. And it was one guy who was a friend of our managing partner in Sweden. I was like, look, can we just take equity in this business and transform it? So we called it Raws, Straws That Don't Suck. Um, I think that's brilliant. And we, we completely rebranded it as a business that could be any natural solution to a, a plastic problem. Yeah. So our first example of that is straws, but like we're about to launch in the UK and the US. It's a huge, fast-growing business. It's award-winning already. That's brilliant. Isn't like, it? It, but like we never really realized it could take off as quickly as that. But the also, thing with straws, it's like it's, it's, straws became symbolic, didn't they? Very quickly, and suddenly every yeah. fast food outlet is going banning, banning plastic straws, and there wasn't a credible alternative in place. Well, to, paper's to, shit, right? Because paper it, just goes mushy. It goes mushy, but also it's drink, not recyclable, you know? and yeah. it's got glue. Yeah, mm. you know, it's not exactly a sustainable product. So like rolls are made with reeds now so we moved from wheat to reeds um and that's a natural straw it lasts forever it's dishwasher safe you know who would, who would have thought <laughs> but it's like it basically grows out the ground and it's harvested every year to just clear the clear the marshland so it's like a natural waste product so you know it, it biodegrades in a week if you you know if you drop it it's amazing but that kind of um solution's been there for plastic uh, product products all the time what we needed was a, a brand delivered with some personality, the same panache that a plastic product might be delivered with. So, you know, straws that don't suck was the, the line we got to first, and then Rolls became a, a title. But, like, uh, one of the, the, the FAQ on the website is hilarious. I wrote that after a few gins on a plane. So if you want to have a bit of fun, <laughs> read that. You heard it here first. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> but to, like, yeah. I think one of the lines on that is you can have any color as long as it's beige. Um, but, like, I, I, like, that's fun. But also we're showing clients that we will live we understand what it feels like to be a client. I think that compassion, that empathy between client and agency is where, you know, it's not us and them, you know, it's, it's the work. Are we doing work that's important? You know, we want to do good work for good people that has a good impact. If we get things right, if manifest exists as I want it to exist over the next 10 years, then doing good, and I don't mean altruism all the time, but having a significantly positive impact on your customers, if that's what, that should be synonymous with commercial performance. And if it is, then it means everyone will have to build that into their business plan because otherwise they'd be dumb not to, you know? And I think that Apple did that for branding. Everyone now is brand first, which is great because that's the right way to go. But that's because they showed that it works. But in the 80s and 90s, it was how much can I, how much do I get for how little money can I spend? Yeah, you know, that's like so that's true. And I think the... Um the, the, the times are changing so quickly our consciousness of things like the environment and you know having genuine purpose and impact on on the planet is just so different to even two three four years ago totally totally um, yeah so brands have got to match that challenge definitely yeah cool well, listen let me um let me uh, let me come on to two final questions then so um what's next for you and manifest oh so i think for manifest we were opening in manchester so we'll open in Manchester early 2020, which is cool. Um, that's our, our first office of 2020. We should also open another international office, um, which I'll be more tight-lipped about. Um, but um, Somewhere exotic? Holiday destination? <laughs> An <laughs> island? Basically, all the cities we're in are cities we want to be in. I think the first <laughs> office we opened was just New York, and it was like, well, we, it would be cool to have It'd a New York cool office. There, yeah, and yeah. then it was like, let's post-rationalize yeah. a commercial reason to be there. Um, but Manchester is great to get us out of that London bubble, but also the talent pool in the north of England is massive. I'm dead excited about that and also add a string to our bow from a, a services standpoint. So I think there's that that's next. Um, 
in terms of just obvious answer. I think in terms of um, our ambition as an agency is to really become, we believe in like unified communications, which I know again, sounds like one of those cliched things, but like integration was a real step forward, I think for people where every channel speaks to each other and it all makes sense. But unification for me is where every channel amplifies the other. And there's not one that's more important, even if it is more important from an audience standpoint. It's like actually, um, you know, an integrated campaign is a billboard and a tweet and a press release that all have the same narrative, right? But unification is a billboard that inspires tweets that is news. Got it, yeah. You know, like that's yeah. something that that, that um, holistic approach is so much harder, but so much more rewarding. And our best work for everyone from Samsung, um, ASOS, BrewDog, all of those brands that we've done that for, that's that's been when it's been most rewarding. And also that's what we're able to do when we own part of the brand too, yeah. you know? We're able to insist that that's the case. So I think the industry's going that way. Um, so yeah, we want to be at the forefront of that. So last question, and uh, I, I've asked everyone this one. Uh, tell me something you've never told anyone else before from a, any, any, any subject matter, something that no one else knows about you. Um, I would say that, um, I mean, this is completely random. Like, it is a really tough question. And I had, lo <laughs> I had loads of um, interesting answers. One of the things is I'd really like to run a coffee shop. Ah. Like, I think a coffee brand yeah. would be mega uh, um, to, to establish in our ventures. Arm. Okay. But I just like have this idea of like building something that is an experience, that's yeah. truly an experience. It might be inspired by Huge. They have a coffee shop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like, it would be great to just have, I don't know why, it just feels like the example of like running a little business that is all built on passion. I'm really passionate about coffee. So I think something like that would be great. Um, but then the other bit is more like, I, I like to think I'm a bit of a film buff or into music or whatever, but like realistically, my, my favorite film is Ghostbusters. Oh, uh, so classic. it tells you a lot. <laughs> I think it's as near a perfect film as you can get. Yeah, but, um, but like it's, I think it shows that my mindset is you can do what you want in terms of quality, but if you're not having fun, it's pointless. That's a great. And I think fun is what we do. And whatever we're doing at Manifest in 10 years time, I've no idea what that'll be, but I can guarantee you we'll be having a ball doing it. And that's it's, the most it's important It's the old phrase, thing. isn't it, about you'll never work a day in your life if if, if, you work, if your work is what your passion is. Exactly. And you're having fun, you know. Yeah, you feel like work. totally. And I think that's a good filter to have is, am I enjoying this? You know, and if you're not, just stop doing it. That's a brilliant place to, brilliant place to end the podcast. Um, just lastly then, how can people get hold of you? So at Alex Myers on all social networks. Um, it's manifest.rocks um, website, uh, which is the URL I'm not supposed to use, but we have manifest.london, manifest.nyc. So yeah, it's manifest.rocks manifest for all of them. Um, yeah, and that's it. Alex. And manifest everywhere. You Thank know. you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun to chat. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Uncensored CMO. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Now, just to wrap up, I've got one request of you. I would love it if you would drop me a DM on Twitter at Uncensored CMO and let me know who you think I should have on the show. If you'll do that for me, I will send you a bottle of pink Moe. What could be fairer than that? Um, I would genuinely really appreciate it, so please do that. James, and finally, how can what should people do now? 
Well, we would really, really also appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help the podcast grow. If you've got a friend who wants to listen to the best new marketing podcast out there, please do share it with them. Share the, this episode on Twitter. Share it on LinkedIn. Let's push this podcast far and wide. Thank you.